0: Our Father in Heaven, we give You thanks and praise for who You are, the Sovereign King full of love and grace, the Holy God, the Lord of hosts. And we give You thanks and praise for all Your wonderful works from one generation to the next. For You are our Creator, our Ruler, our Redeemer, our Sustainer, the One who does all things wisely. We thank you, Lord, for all the blessings of this life, for family and friends, for health and safety, for times of joy and trials perfectly proportioned, for music and feasting and all the good things you bring into our lives, filling our lives with beauty and goodness. Today, Lord, we especially thank you for all the blessings of new life in the church, We thank You for bringing us into Your covenant family as adopted children. We thank You that we are sons and daughters of the King. We thank You that even now we experience the life of the world that is to come. We thank You for making us members of Your royal priesthood and prophetic council. We thank You for giving us Your Word and the sacraments that we might know Your love and be assured of our salvation and be led by Your wisdom. We thank you for declaring to us that our sins are forgiven, for unleashing the transforming power of your grace in our lives. We thank you for the legacy and heritage of our fathers and mothers in the faith. And Lord, as we gather today, we do so in the sure confidence that you will meet us here in all your glorious and gracious presence, that you will show us mercy that you will build your church on the chief cornerstone of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that your church will never be toppled. Indeed, not even the gates of hell can withstand her march to victory. O Lord, may we take another step towards that ultimate victory today. For yours is the power and the glory and the wisdom and the majesty, God our Father, through God the Son, with God the Holy Spirit, One God in three persons, world without end. Amen.
1: Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your church. We thank You for making us living members of the body of Christ and children in the household of faith. We ask that today You would encourage us uh, through the stories of faithfulness of Your people, through Your faithfulness to Your church throughout all the ages. We thank You that the church is an anvil that has worn out many a hammer, and that the gates of hell will not prevail against the advance of your kingdom. In the name of your Son we pray. Amen. Well, Voltaire referred to these events as an epidemic of fury which lasted for 200 years and which was marked by every cruelty, every perfidy, every debauchery, and every folly of which human nature is capable. David Hume described these events as the most signal and most durable monument to human folly that has yet appeared in any age or nation. One historian in the 17th century said, that these events would be remembered forever as the sewer of Christendom. And now in our own day and in recent ages, historians call these events the first colonialistic exploitations of greedy Western elites. Can you guess the events to which I am referring? It's the medieval crusades. The Crusades have taken a pretty bad beating uh, throughout history. The Crusades have been the, dark, it, the darkest spot of the dark ages. Uh, the Crusades have been a trump card used to silence Christians. Anytime that a Christian wants to say anything good about what the church has done throughout history, well, what about the Crusades? And we kind of hang our heads and put our tail between our legs and slowly walk away and embarrass me. I actually, the college that uh, Michelle and I went to in, in uh, Florida was a small Christian college and their, um, their mascot was the Crusaders until a couple years after 9-11 they were embarrassed and changed their mascot from the Crusaders to something, uh, I think it's the fire now, real intimidating. Um, But the Crusades have have been used against the church to shame us, to silence us, to prove, according to many of the new atheists, that religion in general, but Christianity in particular, is bad for society, it's bad for the world, it's bad for human flourishing. The accepted narrative that gets uh, propagated and told in even the most Um, well-respected history books and even most uh, Western Civ textbooks that are used in many colleges and universities and high schools, the the narrative uh, that gets uh, propagated is that the Crusaders were greedy European elites who wanted to force peaceful Muslims to convert to Christianity and in the meantime steal the financial and cultural riches of an advanced Muslim civilization. Th- this is the the general kind of narrative uh, that is told by even many within the church. Um, you've had popes in recent years, you know, kind of operate on this assumption uh, and make apologies um, for for the Crusades. And there are certainly things with that happened during the Crusades that needed to be apologized for, right? I'm not here to say that the Crusades were totally noble and free of any uh, of any sin or, or above any criticism. But what I want to do today uh, as part of our, uh, this is not a Reformation sermon per se, but we, we need to understand uh, how the Crusades actually happened and how they shaped the world that the Reformers lived in. And so what I want to do today is not try to run through and and give you a detailed account of all the Crusades. There were actually eight or nine official Crusades, but then there were many others that were uh, sort of unofficial. Uh, What I want to do is focus on debunking some of the myths about the Crusades that are most popular, that are most often used uh, to shame shame Christians uh, and to embarrass us. So the, this is the, sort of the, the thesis that I'm going to, uh, to develop uh, this morning, is that, in, uh, that the Crusades were carried out at great personal expense to Christian noblemen and kings who primarily aimed at driving back brutal Muslim invaders that threatened the very existence of a flourishing Western civilization. This is sort of, uh, this is my thesis. This is, uh, this is the thesis of, a, of an excellent book uh, called God's Battalions by a, histor- a sociologist named Rodney Stark. So if this sparks an interest uh, for you, go check out Rodney Stark's book, God's Battalions, and he'll fill in uh, all the details um, that I can't cover this morning. Now, just a few disclaimers, because this is a, you know, in the post-9-11 world, Um, This is a very touchy subject and what I'm going to say is going to be very unpopular and not politically correct at all. Um, I'm not apologizing for that. I just want to clarify a few things. That this is not an attempt to engender hatred or contempt of Muslims at all, but to show the practical outworking of Islamic religion in a society. Okay, so some of these things... I say might be sound very critical and arrogant and ethnocentric, how dare I, but what I'm going to show and what history shows is the way that Islamic religion works itself out in a society. The other thing um, that I want to clarify up front is that um, I am just going to focus on more of the the myths around the Crusades. Um, So my focus will be on who the Crusaders were and what motivated them to participate in the Crusades. There's some exciting military history about the Crusades. We don't have time for all of that, so this will be—it will probably be more background um, about the Crusades than anything else. But this is this is where most of the of the myths uh, are told. So first, let's look at some of the historical context leading up to the Crusades. The things that sparked the Crusades, the events that led the Crusaders to go off and to fight. Let's back all the way up to the Prophet Muhammad. Muhammad was born in the year 570 AD and he died in the year 632. Um, During his life, Muhammad captured the city of his birth, Mecca. He took it by force and several years before his death, uh, he and his army, uh, his army um, carried on this this legacy of taking over cities, uh, of setting up their rule in a city according to Sharia law, according to uh, Islamic religion. The Muslims, primarily uh, Muhammad and his followers, his successors after him, were primarily after uh, financial gain and religious conquest. This is not really debated. Even Muslim historians will acknowledge that that's what Muhammad and his successors were after. And They took over Syria. They took over Damascus. This is all in the 7th century. They routed the Byzantine army. They invaded Persia. They defeated the Persians in Iraq. They moved into Pakistan all the way eventually into India. Uh, they invaded Palestine. They routed... Uh, the Greeks in uh, the the Greeks had left uh, Palestine vulnerable when they were defeated in Syria and so the Muslims came and besieged Jerusalem and took Jerusalem for the first time in 638 this was only six years after Muhammad's death uh, in Egypt uh, they devastated the Greeks uh, in Egypt they captured Alexandria one of the most important cities a center of Christianity for hundreds of years they captured Alexandria they leveled it to the ground, um, and they used uh, Greek and Egyptian naval experts to build and sail uh, a navy. They took over a lot of little islands in the Mediterranean. Uh, They uh, destroyed most of the important cities in North Africa, Carthage uh, and others that had been Christian cities, Christian centers. Uh, In Spain, they even in the 8th century, the early 8th century, they invaded across the Mediterranean, that little tiny uh, strip there, the little piece of water, what's that called? The Rock of Gibraltar. That is named after the Muslim ruler Jabal Tariq, the Rock of Tariq, Gibraltar, right? So in 711, the Muslims crossed um, the Rock of Gibraltar, they invaded Spain. They took over much of Spain, uh, ran the Visigoths out in a seven-year campaign, set up a kingdom in Spain. They captured many cities in Sicily and in southern Italy uh, over several centuries. So this is all going on in the 600s, the 700s, the 800s. The Muslims are expanding out of out of uh, Iraq, out of. Baghdad and taking over North Africa, expanding up into Palestine, pushing into Syria and Turkey, attacking Constantinople, spreading all the way up into Spain. this is what was going on uh, in the centuries leading up to the Crusades. Even though the Muslim even though the Muslim forces in this time period were conquering vast regions of the Greek Byzantine Empire, Hundreds of years passed before significant segments of the population became Muslim. So at that time, they were not enforcing a sort of convert or die sort of reign on the peoples that they conquered. And so maybe half the population would be non-Muslim, would be Christian, would be Jews. And it's actually these people were allowed to retain their their religion, whether it was pagan or Hindu or Christian or Jew, but they were severely oppressed, they were heavily taxed, and they were treated as second-class citizens, often forced to wear certain uh, clothes or markers on their clothing, clothing identifying them as non-Muslims. But the irony is that it was these conquered people, these Jews, these Christians, these pagans or Hindus, whoever they were, that actually made the Muslim civilizations in that time what they were. So here's, here's the irony. The irony is that secular historians give the the Muslims a free pass for doing the very things that they accuse the Christians of doing in the Crusades. You understand that the Muslims were after money. They were after financial gain. They were after expanding their empire. They were seeking to make religious converts. That was their mandate. Jihad, holy war, right? Don't stop fighting until everyone says that there is no God but Allah, right? But that's exactly not what the Crusaders were doing, as I, as I hope to show you. But the historians give the Muslims a free pass on all of those things and accuse the Crusaders of doing what in fact it was the Muslims who did that sparked the Crusades. And we'll, we'll look into that a little bit more. In fact, it's it's so um, it's so unpopular to say to take this view of, of what happened leading up to the Crusades that many historians have actually tried to make up excuses as to why the muslim armies in that day were expanding so far outside of their boundaries there've been theories that there was some population explosion and they had to to spread out there was there've been theories that you know trade caravans became less and less uh, available and so the, the muslims had to go elsewhere to find places to trade and buy and sell but all of these all of these myths have been disproven So instead of a scenario where greedy, power-hungry, colonizing Europeans attacked the, the peaceful and tolerant Muslims, the situation was exactly the opposite. The Crusaders and their predecessors were often responding to Muslim attacks in an effort to protect their lands and their people and their churches from slaughter and tyranny. When we talk about the Crusades, those the Crusades usually refers to the military campaigns that were uh, that were called on by a pope. Usually, it was a pope who called for a crusade to go and to take back or to defend the Holy Land. Um, they started in the year 1095. Pope Urban II was sent word from the greek emperor or the yeah the, the emperor of the byzantine empire that the muslims had surrounded constantinople so they had come, they had come from north africa and iraq and syria they had gone all the way up palestine they had gone through syria through turkey all the way up into asia minor and they were at the gates of the city of constantinople that's a huge vast area of land that they had taken and the emperor the Byzantine Empire sends word to the Pope. You know, please send help. Right? The the Greeks and the Romans were not friends. They they didn't get along very well. But they were Christians, and the the Byzantine Emperor knew the only the only person he could ho- you know get help from was the, were the Christians in the West, the Latin Church, the Roman Church. And so the Pope Pope Urban the preached a sermon telling about all the atrocities that were happening in the Holy Land and what what was being done to Christians and churches and monks and pilgrims. And so the people gathered to go and fight and protect their people, protect their churches, and to protect the Holy Land that was being desecrated. Here's just a few things that were reported as going on. Uh, right as the Crusades were getting started. Pilgrims to Jerusalem were being crucified by the dozens. They were being ambushed. They were being stoned to death. Monks were being burned alive in their monasteries. At one point uh, in the 11th century, one uh, emir, one caliph, ordered the destruction and pillaging of 30,000 churches. Turkish armies were massacring thousands and burned dozens of cities such as Damascus, Jerusalem, and Tyre. Sound familiar to anything you've seen on the news recently? The First Crusade was an attempt to retake the Holy Land and to protect the churches and the Christian pilgrims. And so the Crusaders uh, started off from... Uh, the West, they started off, many of them were French uh, from Western Europe. They started off to go first to Constantinople to help the Greeks, to help the Byzantine Empire, and then they were going to go all the way down to Jerusalem uh, and take back uh, Jerusalem and cities in the Holy Land. When they got down there, they were successful, wildly successful, in spite of all odds. They were vastly, vastly outnumbered. Uh, But, the European military strategy and tactics and technology was superior. uh, And the Muslims were much better uh, attackers than they were defenders. And so the Crusaders were able to uh, take back the city of Jerusalem and take back some of the the other important cities along the way. They lost thousands and thousands uh, in casualties but they took back Jerusalem and they established little crusader kingdoms there in Palestine. They would build fortresses uh, and establish small kingdoms in the cities that they had, had taken back from the Muslims. So the first uh, half of the Crusades, Crusades 1, 2, 3, and 4, were focused on the Holy Land, taking back uh, cities that had been taken rebuilding churches that had been ruined protecting pilgrims that were being uh, attacked by the Muslims the the last half of the Crusades were focused on trying to attack the Muslim bases in North Africa they realized that it was pointless to keep sending armies to the to the Holy Land from Europe you know every 30 or 40 years to keep you know driving the Muslims back from their little outposts so they said, well, if we go straight to North Africa, if we go to Egypt and weaken their military power there, then they won't be able to exert so much influence uh, over the Holy Land. That's sort of an overview of what led to the Crusades, what sparked the call for the Crusades, and what actually happened in, in the Crusades. So now that we have a better idea of a little bit of what led to the Crusades, we need to understand who these people were. Who were these Crusaders and what motivated them other than um, what we've already mentioned? It's interesting, uh, recently historians have been able to go back through all kinds of ancient documents and discover who the Crusaders were. And as it turns out, many of the initial crusaders were noble families. They were dukes and counts, and uh, you know all the different no- nobility, usually from from France, the Franks, or the Germans. They were all mostly related. Uh, they were friends. They were brothers-in-law. They had you know multiple sons, and they would all go off to fight together. They would take. You know their whole family sometimes and go off uh, on a crusade they paid their own way usually at their own expense they would mortgage all their property they would borrow money uh, they would put up their castles for collateral they would sell off land they would uh, do anything to raise money uh, to pay their own way to go on this expedition uh, to fight in the Crusades. Pilgrims and peasants often accompanied the military. It was a very popular thing in that day to go to Jerusalem, go to the Holy Land on a pilgrimage. Pilgrimages were actually uh, often required as penance for especially bad sins. Um, and so, the, you know, if you went in and told the priest that you had done something extremely horrible, he would say, well, sounds like you need a pilgrimage. You know, and people are like, well, that sounds like nowadays, you know, people might not object. Oh, well, I'm being required to go on this trip overseas, but not if there's people trying to kill you all along the way and it costs, you know, all of your life savings and then some. Uh, Well, when the people found out that the armies were going down to Jerusalem, they decided, hey, we'll tag along. We'll have protection." And so you had all these peasants and all these people uh, that would follow the armies, and oftentimes they got in the way, um, and many of them were, were killed, uh, unfortunately. Um, but one, one theory that, that historians, secular historians, have proposed is that the reason that all these peasants and all these commoners wanted to go to the Holy Land is because everybody was just so poor and so destitute in Europe They thought, if we follow the armies, then we can pick up some of the spoil, take it back with us. But that's actually not at all the case. The Crusades were only possible, the the commoners and the peasants and even the nobility, they were only able to undertake these massively expensive campaigns, not because Europe was in such bad financial shape, but because this was an economic boom time. They had money to spare. They still had to use most everything they had. Uh, some some people went bankrupt um, fighting in the Crusades, supporting the Crusades. But this was a time of economic prosperity. And so to say that the Crusades were a time of uh, colonialism, European colonialism, when they would go off and send all the booty back to Europe, all the wealth was actually going the opposite way. All the wealth was not going... Uh, from Palestine to Europe, and they were plundering all the wealth down there and bringing it back to their treasuries in Europe. The wealth was actually flowing the other way. All the wealth from Europe was being poured in to the Crusades being poured into these Crusader kingdoms in the Holy Land to pay salaries to buy food, to uh, fund these massive uh, campaigns and navies and armies and you know, cities. Later, uh, the, so the first wave of crusaders were nobles. They were uh, they were the nobility, the knights, and their vassals who would go off to, to war with them. Uh, the later crusaders, uh, the, the later crusades were actually organized by kings, um, and that's when you started to have taxes being levied on a king and his on a king's subjects. So people were okay with the crusades as long as the nobility were funding it themselves. But when kings started leading the crusades and started taxing people to pay for it, that's when a lot of people got tired of the crusades and lost lost interest. And uh, so that's kind of what led one of the main reasons that led to uh, the end of the crusades was the financial burden on the people it became very unpopular, as you can imagine. So what were their goals? This is a little bit maybe about who they were. Uh, But what were their goals? As I've already said, um, they were going to not acquire wealth, but they were going because they were motivated uh, to liberate the Holy Land. They were interested. um, There had actually been prior calls for the Crusades. I told you that the Muslims had invaded up into Spain, and there were wealthy Muslim empires in Spain and one of the previous popes in the early 11th century had called for a, a crusade to go push the Muslims out of Spain and there was much wealth to be gained uh, in such uh, such a crusade but nobody responded the call for a crusade just based on the wealth that you could get out of it was apparently not that attractive to, to all these no- nobles who were already wealthy Like, why am I going to go put my life on the line, my whole family's life on the line to go get a little bit more money? I've already got plenty. Um, So that was usually not um, the motivation. I'm sure some were after the money. But usually, um, it had to do with a desire to protect uh, fellow Christians. It It was a desire to protect the Holy Land, which was being desecrated. Um, And mixed with that, it was a desire to do penance for uh, their own sins. See, like I said, pilgrimage was a a common cure, apparently, or a common recipe in penance. If you uh, had done something horrible, you might be required to make a pilgrimage. So there were uh, a huge influx of pilgrims. Uh, into the Holy Land to go and, you know, follow in the footsteps of Jesus and, um, you know, see relics and uh, somehow atone for your sins. Uh, This was, of course, criticized uh, by people early on in church history like Augustine and others said that this was ridiculous, this is pointless, you know, doing a pilgrimage is definitely not the way to uh, repent of your sins and, you know, think you're earning salvation. But this was a popular thing in that time period. And so most of the people going to fight in the Crusades had first hand eyewitness accounts of what was being done to the pilgrims because their own family, their own friends, their own relatives had gone on a pilgrimage and maybe been attacked or killed or maybe seen what was going on and had come back and reported it. And so this really got people upset. This really got people uh, fired up and ready to fight. Um, Now, all of these nobles, all of these saints were not, again, the most holy and pious and saintly people. Pope Urban II, in his initial call for a crusade, actually said, you guys have been fighting each other all the time. Why don't you stop fighting each other and go fight a battle that's actually worth fighting? Right. So he, he recognized that, the guys he was calling on were not, you know, the most uh, righteous and pious and noble. Uh, there were a lot of bad things that that were done um, by some of the crusaders. Uh, but usually, they were going uh, to protect the Holy Land, to protect pilgrims, uh, and to do penance for their own sin. Uh, they said, you know, if I got to take a pilgrimage anyway, I might as well go down and kill some people while I'm at it, right? You know. This is kind of how people back then thought. We don't think that's very uh, very nice, but that's just the world uh, that they lived in. Um, the one thing, though, that I think is important to keep in mind is that the Crusaders were never ever, uh, to my knowledge, they were never commanded or commissioned or never set out with the goal of converting the Muslims to Christianity by force. This was not a goal of the Crusades. When the Pope called for the Crusades, when somebody called for the Crusades, it was not for the purpose of going to force, you know mass conversions upon the Muslims, you know a, a convert or die uh, type of, of approach. In fact, the Crusader kingdoms that were set up in Palestine, they let many of the the Muslims stay there in the regions surrounding their fortresses and their citadels and lived very happily under the rule of these Crusader kings. There's actually records where Muslim historians will say we much rather prefer to live life under these Christians because they're actually fair and they're just and they uh, they don't oppress us and mistreat us and there's not all these you know political squabblings and assassinations and revolutions. Life was much more peaceful and just uh, under the rule of the crusaders than under the rule of many of the, the Muslim caliphs. Okay, so now the last thing I want to do is look at this charge that the the Westerns, the Westerners, the Europeans were all backwards and dumb, and you know this was the Dark Ages, and all learning had been you know done away with and obscured, and everybody. Uh, uh, every, everything in Europe was completely dark. This was the, you know, the darkest time of European civilization, but the Muslims had this flourishing society, and the Europeans went off and took back all the wealth and cultural riches of the Muslim civilization and imported it into Europe. And that's why Western civilization flourished and Muslim society didn't, for the most part. Probably see where this is going already. I've alluded to it, but as I've said, the Crusades are typically seen as the darkest part of the so-called Dark Ages. Uh, some historians uh, designate the Dark Ages as every the time between 300 and 1300. Uh, one important historian who was actually a librarian of Congress years ago, Daniel Borston, says that Christendom brought on 1,000 years of scholarly amnesia because the leaders of Orthodox Christendom built a grand barrier against the progress of knowledge. That's a pretty serious charge to say that for 1,000 years, Christianity basically put Europe into some sort of uh, intellectual suicide or some sort of uh, intellectual amnesia. Of course, this was really picked up and played on by the thinkers of the so-called Enlightenment. Right? They pointed back to the classical uh, scholars as this bright, you know, time of learning and culture. But then, man, when, Christ- when Christendom was on the scene. Christians were in charge. Everything just went to pot. And then, you know, 1400s or whatever. We're going to recover everything. This this was such a dark time. We're going to enlighten everything. Everything's been dark. The lights have been put out. Uh, but we're gonna we're gonna bring this new learning. We're gonna recover everything that's been lost. Well, that's actually not at all what happened. The Dark Ages um, actually don't even exist. The Encyclopedia Britannica back in the early 80s actually they they basically retracted their use of the word dark ages. So for, you know, for a very long time Encyclopedia Britannica and the whole prevailing world of scholarship had said that the dark ages were this horrible time for western civilization and european culture. And then in 1981, the Encyclopedia Britannica says actually That's inaccurate. The Dark Ages are a misnomer. This never happened. Did you ever hear that in history class? Um, Probably not, right? So, in that context, the Crusades are seen as the darkest of the dark moments. Um, Because it's, you know, these backwards Westerners came and stole um, everything that the Muslims had worked for in their culture. But remember what I said at the very beginning, that when the Muslim invaders in the 6th and 7th and 8th centuries, when they would overtake a region, they would allow most of their uh, subjects to practice their own religion. They would be oppressed, they would be persecuted, but by by that in that time period they were usually not forced to convert or they were not killed usually. Well, their civilizations were built on the achievements of those people. So let me give you some. Let me give you some examples. In science and in medicine, most of what is attributed to Muslim scholars in science and medicine were actually accomplishments and books and things discovered by Jews, Christians, and Persians. And the Jews, Christians, and Persians were actually the ones. Who translated their works into Arabic? So the books got translated by the Jews and the Christians and the Persians. The math in mathematics, you, what do you call the the numbering system that uses numerals or uses actual numbers based on zero? You call it Arabic numerals, right? Guess what? Guess where they actually came from? They came from a Hindu scholar who was living under the rule. Of the Muslims in that time, right? Astronomy. Muslims are usually given credit for the discoveries at this time that were actually made by Persians and Hindus who were living under Muslim Muslim rule. Many of these pagan uh, religions were astronomers and had you know a great insight into uh, the stars. Uh, take shipbuilding. The Muslims are. From the desert, they're not expert shipbuilders. They don't have the materials, in uh, the expertise to build ships like those in North Africa or in the northern Mediterranean coast. And so, when the Muslims, when they wanted to form a navy to go fight somebody, they would conscript all the Greeks and all the Egyptians, uh, and they all the Italians, and they would make them build the ships and sail the ships and do all. Uh, the naval uh, warfare to transport their troops. Um, Here's an interesting little fact about architecture. The Dome of the Rock, the famous uh, mosque built on the site where the temple uh, used to stand. The Dome of the Rock was actually built by Byzantine, Greek, architects and craftsmen. Baghdad one of the most holy cities in Islam, was designed by a Zoroastrian and a Jew. Okay, the, the list goes on and on. And here's, here's I think, um, uh, something maybe a little bit humorous. Um, in terms of technology, the Muslims really did not make any of their own advancements, significant advancements in technology. Here, in fact, they, they had camels, and they were successful in many of their military campaigns in the desert with their camels, but when they settled down and, and started to sort of take over civilizations, the wheel had been in existence in many of the places where they had taken over. The wheel actually fell out of disuse. They de-invented the wheel, from many of the places where they ruled, because they didn't want to build roads, they have we have camels. We can go anywhere on camels. We don't need roads. We don't need wheels. We don't need wagons. We've got camels. Well, that came back to haunt them uh, when they were fighting Crusaders who had massive wagons pulled by massive you know, horses and all the rest. Uh, so this is how um, Rodney Stark summarizes uh, the evidence of comparing. These two civilizations. He says the decline of Muslim culture and the inability of Muslims to keep up with the West occurred because Muslim or Arab culture was largely an illusion resting on a complex mix of the cultures that they conquered. That's his assessment of that theory. Now, despite what talking heads and politically correct pundits may say, Islam, the religion of Islam, in all its forms, is essentially a religion of hatred and death, hatred and violence that breeds a culture of death. Now, That doesn't mean that all Muslims are hateful people, but it does mean that the DNA of Islam, the DNA of Muhammad and his successors and true Islam is inescapably destructive, oppressive, and suffocating to a culture. But isn't this what we would expect? from a religion with no triune God, no atonement and no resurrection. There may be and there are moderate peaceful Muslims but there is no such thing as moderate peaceful Islam. See the difference here? If you think that this sounds extreme sounds a little bit hate speech or something. Consider what the Prophet Muhammad told his followers in his farewell address before his death. I alluded to this earlier. The Prophet Muhammad in his farewell address says, I was ordered to fight all men until they say there is no God but Allah. That is the DNA of Islam. There is this is none other than a command to subjugate the world through violence and tyranny and oppression. And we see the fruits uh, of, Islamic, of Islamic religion in the type of societies that they build, or rather destroy, as the case may be. So compare the parting words of the Prophet Muhammad with the parting words of Jesus. Which, interestingly, did you catch the little passage in the Gospel reading right before the Great Commission about how the you know, the Romans and the Jews conspired to you know, pay off one another to tell lies about what had really happened to Jesus' body? I think that's kind of what's going on in your history textbooks and, and different things sometimes, uh, with this view of the Crusades and everything that gets propagated. If you compare the parting words of Muhammad with... These are not the parting words of Jesus, right? Uh, This was on a mountain in Galilee. Jesus ascended um, from the Mount of Olives. so These are not his last words, but these are some of his last words. Jesus says, Go therefore and disciple the nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I am with you always to the end of the age. The anti-gospel of Islam makes slaves of Allah. That's what Islam means, right? Slave, right? But the Muslim... but So the anti-gospel of Islam makes slaves of Allah. But the gospel of Christ makes sons of God. You're no longer slaves. But your sons. You're no longer servants. I've called you friends. This is the stark difference between the words and the philosophy of Muhammad and the gospel of Jesus. Muhammad commanded his followers to give their lives in taking the lives of others. But Christ calls us to follow his example by giving our lives so that others might live. This is the totally opposite way of turning everything on its head, right? The resurrection allows us to have that kind of hope, to live that kind of sacrificial life of service. Now, certainly God has authorized the civil magistrate to wield the sword. And to promote what is good and to punish evil, to protect the vulnerable. But that's not the primary way that the world is going to be transformed. Just as the Crusaders knew they couldn't keep sending armies to the Holy Land every 30 or 40 years, right? The threat was going to continue. The cities were not going to be held by just a small contingent of forces. They knew that fighting those wars was not going to provide a long-term solution. And just like we need godly rulers, we need wise and judicious political leaders who can know under the authority and wisdom of God's Word how to wield the sword in a wise and judicious way to protect the vulnerable from attack and massacre and persecution. But we know from God's Word that the primary way that the world is going to be transformed is through the church, through the preaching of the Gospel, through Word and through sacrament and through discipline of the church, through fellowship of God's people, through ministries of mercy and through laying down our lives for one another. It's maybe easy for us as Americans to just expect our government and our military to go solve the problems in the Middle East. But I think you and I know well enough that that's not going to ever provide a long-term solution. That's not the way that the world is going to be transformed primarily. Don't worry, I'm not going to call any of you to undertake a crusade, and I doubt that Pope Francis would either. But we have to realize as Christians that the, the ministry of the church, the life of the church, uh, the preaching of the gospel, laying down our lives for one another, praying for our persecuted brothers and sisters, this is the way that the world will be transformed. This is the way that Jesus shows us that the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The church is commanded to go forth and to baptize and to teach the nations, to disciple the nations in the wisdom of God. And Jesus has promised to be with us to the end of the age. His great commission will be fulfilled. His church will succeed through trial, through struggle, through defeat, through battles, through afflictions. We will limp to victory but God's church will prevail. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness. We thank You for the promises that You give to us to be with us, to empower us with Your authority, Your your Gospel. We ask that You would help us to live lives worthy of You, lives that will turn the world upside down and show everyone, that we are your disciples and the hope that we have in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.